Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here uh, this morning and for bringing the church into this YMCA gymnasium. Uh, if I've not had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie. It's my great joy to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. And we are uh, diving into uh, week two of a sermon series. We began last week, a study of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. It's this, you find it in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. All right, these words of Jesus. And so we're looking at this over the next several weeks, really through the fall until we get to the season of Advent with this idea of following the way of the king. What does it look like to be a community that's following what Jesus actually taught. And so as just a quick recap as we get into things this morning, especially if you weren't here last week, let me just catch you up to speed by saying this. As Jesus gets up, it tells us at the beginning of chapter five, he goes up on this hillside and he begins to, he sits down, which would have been the posture of a, of a Jewish teacher at that time, would sit down, all right, and he begins to teach all the people, the crowds, the disciples that had gathered around. But just prior to that, at the end of chapter four, we read these words. It said, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, which simply means turn in a new direction. You've been going one way, the call now is to turn and move in a new direction. He's saying, you need to turn in a new direction because the king is here. So repent, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. And so what Jesus is declaring is this. In no uncertain terms, he's like, the king has arrived, the king is on the move, the king is taking his world back. And then what he begins to teach in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what it looks like when Jesus, the king, takes his world back. And then what the calling is for you and me as followers of him. If you're a follower of him, what does that look like? And if you're not a follower of him and you're exploring this, like what is the, the call? Like what does it look like to be this community of faith together. And so we're going to look this morning at verses 13 to 16 of Matthew chapter 5. And so we want you to have God's word to be able to follow along. So a couple things. If you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's paperback ones on a couple of the back tables there. And you can turn to page 898 is where you'll find this text. Your other option is to go to cpwp.life on your phone. All right. Swipe over the second card says message notes. And so the text this morning that we'll be in is there. Things that you see up on the screen this morning, uh, that information will be there as well, space to take notes, that sort of thing. And so I'd encourage you to follow along. The authority is not in me. The authority is not just the one who has the microphone. The authority is in God's word. And so we want to proclaim unashamedly the word of God. And part of our sort of just reverence for that, the reality of this word that, that we submit to, I'm going to read these verses. But what I want to do is, because this really is one section, is go back and just start at the beginning of chapter 5 and read the first 16. And then we're going to focus in on 13 to 16. But as I read this, would you go ahead and stand? Here's how the Sermon on the Mount begins. It says these words. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
And now Jesus says these words in 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what we want to do is we want to explore these words that Jesus gives, and it's important to keep in mind the context. In verses 1 to 12, Jesus lays out for us who's part of this kingdom, and it was the unexpected people. Things are already upside down in the first 12 verses because Jesus is saying there's the winners of society, the winners of culture, the people that are advancing. They've got a great resume. They're the ones that people would have wanted to invite over for dinner. They're the ones that would have been expected to like have some sort of impact, and Jesus says, That's not who I'm focusing in on. He's like, those that are poor in spirit, those that mourn, those that are grieved, the meek, the ones that tend to get trampled on. He's like, all of these people, it's a totally unexpected group of people. And Jesus says, listen, I'm inviting you in. My kingdom is for you. And I find that to be incredibly encouraging because the reality is we all bring in things this morning. There's there's brokenness, there's hardship, there's difficulty, and Jesus is saying, come on, come to me. I want to use you for these beautiful redemptive purposes. And so what Jesus then begins to declare is like to this group of people, he says, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And we'll get to that more in just a moment. But implicit in this, all right, as Jesus makes this declaration, as he talks, and we'll unpack this a bit more when we look at more carefully what it meant by salt and what it means by light. Jesus is laying out for us, first and foremost, though, there's a condition that the world is in. And Jesus is going to declare, okay, here's how I see the world. Here's how I see reality. I define reality, all right? Now, we tend to, type, tend to think like, no, I define reality. I get to do what I want to do. I get to say what things are or are not. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Here is the condition of the world. And when he uses salt and light imagery, what he is saying there is that things are decaying and that there's a darkness that is present, And we'll unpack that more in a moment, but we have to see this. Jesus comes on the scene, he said, things are rotting, things are decaying, things are falling apart, and there's a darkness. People can't navigate, they don't know where to go, they're running into things, there's there's this, you know, I mean, just this chaos that exists in the darkness. And he's like, that is not how I intended things to be. But before we can even move forward, we have to acknowledge that there's decay and that there's darkness. And culturally, though, where we find ourselves and where people have found themselves for a very long time is there's this narrative that continues to be espoused. And maybe a way to think about it is this, that there's really this lie of progress. It happened in the Enlightenment. It's been continuing on now to our present day. And it's this belief that things are going to get better. And interestingly enough, culturally, most people think as religion begins to die, things will actually begin to improve. So what we're doing right here, right now in this space, a lot of people would say, we're actually part of the problem and the only way there's gonna be any sort of progress is if religion begins to die out. Religion isn't dying out. In fact, there's a fervency about religion, even amongst those who claim that they're irreligious, that they're passionate, they're devoted to certain things. And one of the things is this, I would say is a good desire to see progress, but there's this lie. In fact, there's this view of sort of this utopian vision of like, If we can just get the right amount of knowledge, we can channel our energies, we can fix what's wrong with the world. And Jesus is here to tell us, unless I'm the one resolving it and fixing it, you actually have no hope. 
It's fascinating. If you do a word study on just the word utopia, it literally means nowhere. Like it does not exist. And yet there's this pursuit of like, no, we're going to achieve, we're going to accomplish, we're going to do this. Mark Sayers in his book, Reappearing Church, has this really helpful description of this. He says, here's kind of where we find ourselves in this cultural moment. He says, driven, he's describing our culture. He says, we're driven by the belief that we can attain perfection without the divine. Faith in God gives over to faith in ourselves. And this is why we're so tired all the time. Thus the secularist progressive myth seeks to gain the fruit of God's kingdom. And here's how he describes it. Look. Justice, peace, prosperity, redemption. Like we all want those things, regardless if you're a Christian or not, right? But pay attention to this. Seeks to gain the fruit of God's kingdom, justice, peace, prosperity, and redemption, but without the king. So here we arrive at a critical insight that we must grasp as we examine our culture through biblical lenses. In the post-Christian vision, progress replaces God's presence as the engine of history. And Jesus comes on the scene and is telling us a couple thousand years later that what he was communicating to people there, you and I need the presence of God. We are starved for the presence, for the glory of God. We can seek to make plans and strategize all we want, but there will be no true progress unless we are in the presence of God. Now, in light of this reality, one of the things we've got to ask ourselves as the church is because I think there's... There's this false dichotomy. There's this way that the church has tended to lean. All right, maybe you'll identify more with one of these as I kind of define these, these words. There can be a tendency in light of, okay, the world is decaying, the world is dark, all right, that there's this chaos that exists. Sometimes the mindset can be either one of syncretism or sectarianism, all right? And you're like, well, what in the world does that mean, all right? Maybe it's just a way to more simply define it, all right? Syncretism, sort of sameness, all right, or separating is a way to think of sectarianism. There's the sameness. So the world has a particular narrative, and the church oftentimes has said, you know what, we'll buy in. We'll sprinkle a little Jesus talk on it. We'll show up to church every now and again. We'll give a little bit. We'll do those sort of things. But primarily, by and large, we've bought into the narrative of the culture. And so we're just like the culture. There's no real differences. That is a syncretistic view. That is what has, there's kind of this cultural adopting that happens. It's not what Jesus intends for his church. On the other hand, there's this sectarianism or it's separating. It's like the world is chaotic, the world is dark, it's decaying. Do you see this? We gotta huddle up, we gotta protect, we can't have our children out there. We're, you know, we're like the clean ones, we gotta make sure they, that they don't actually get infected by this world. Failing to see, no, the problem's not just out there, the problem's in here. It's in my heart and it's in your heart. All right, the problem follows us along. Like we can't escape it. And so the church, unfortunately, down through the ages, even to where we find ourselves today, oftentimes has said, you know what, I'm too tired, I'm just gonna give up and become just like the rest of the world. That lie seems to be the only thing that brings life. I'm gonna adopt that. Or let's huddle together, let's retreat, let's just pray that Jesus comes back tomorrow because I can't take this anymore, failing to see our call. And so what Jesus is showcasing for us in the Sermon on the Mount is there's a very distinct third way, and it's a third way of us living as salt and light in our particular context. And so I want us to explore this this morning and ask ourselves honestly, like, how are we doing? Are we actually doing our job as salt in light here in this time, in this place? We can study church history, we can look at other movements of God, and that is helpful, At the same time, we have to do the hard work of examining. There's a mirror that is being held up to us, and Jesus is saying, I want you to look into the mirror, and I want you to see and ask yourself honestly, have you been the salt that I've called you to be? Have you been the light that I've called you to be? And in this, there's an invitation 
to one hand to own our part, meaning like we get to participate. Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm the salt and I'm the light and you sit back. He says, no, no, no. You are, as the church, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And yet there's also an indictment in this. Do you hear that? We have to own our part because part of the decay in the culture, part of the darkness in the culture is because we as the church have failed. We have not actually stepped into those spaces and we sometimes either just become just like the rest of the culture or we've separated, but either way, we've contributed to the problem. And Jesus in love says, I have more for you. I want us, he says, I want you to examine this and ask yourselves, like, how, how are we doing? Not just individually, but collectively as a church. And so with this, let's look at what our calling actually is when Jesus says these words. And so he starts out in verse 13, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. And then he goes on to describe, he says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So obviously, we don't want that. We don't want to be cast away as no good. He has this invitation for us. You're the salt of the earth. So what in the world does that actually mean? In what ways perhaps have we failed to be the salt of the earth? Where have we not stepped into the spaces that the Lord has invited us into? And so culturally, and some of you may be familiar with this, having maybe studied this before, but it's good to always come back. There's a simplicity in this. Because Jesus is saying, listen, Every single one of you, regardless of where you are on the economic spectrum, every single person from the poorest to the most wealthy would have used salt on a daily basis. It would have been part of their livelihood. And so Jesus is literally saying, hey, that, this sort of imagery here, this is something I want you to think about. So when you interact with salt, I want you to think about this is part of your calling. And he doesn't say you will be the salt of the earth or you might be or you can be. He says you are. So we've been given this new identity, all right, and part of our identity is these people that are sent on this mission. And he says, to, in, to do this mission well, you need to see you are the salt of the earth. And so you just, if you were to travel back a couple thousand years ago, here's what you would find, all right? Um, you get up in the, you know, maybe in the middle of the night and you're like, hey, I just want a, want a snack. And maybe, you know, present day, you go, you open the fridge, open the freezer, you're like, oh, there's the ice cream or whatever it happens to be, whatever your go-to thing would be. That obviously wouldn't have existed, all right? There was no way to keep things cool. There was no way to keep things, they're certainly not frozen, all right? There wasn't like there was just lots of access to ice and that sort of thing at all. What you had was salt. It was this preserving thing. So if you had something that was this valuable piece of meat, all right, this food that your family was gonna live off of for sustenance, all right, and to be able to enjoy or maybe invite people over, like you didn't want that to go bad. And in that, that climate, all right, I mean, it would go bad. It would putrefy very quickly. It would decay. And so when Jesus is calling us the salt of the earth, he's saying, hey, things are decaying and your job as salt is to be a preserving agent, so that's one aspect of this, right? So the imagery that they would have had in mind, maybe not this exact you know, cuts of meat here, but the idea is like, hey, you've got this thing that's valuable, it could be enjoyed, but the only way the salt is going to do its job is what? It can't stay over here in a little pile altogether, like, hey, we're the salt, and we're huddling together, pointing fingers at the world that's decaying. No, what does the salt have to do? It literally has to be put on the meat pushed into it, all right? It needs to actually have contact if it's going to do its job. Now, it's distinct. Nobody would ever say, oh, it's become this piece of meat, all right? But the idea here is we cannot stay so separated from the culture 
and still be effectively being the salt of the earth. Like we actually have to have some contact. We actually have to be out in the world, in the public spaces, in the neighborhood, on your kids' sports team, whatever it happens to be, at your school, you are called to be salt. That things without the church will decay at a more rapid rate and our calling is to step into those spaces and say, hey, how can I seek to preserve this? How can I see the, the common grace and the good things of this world and help preserve those things? And so that's the first part of this imagery that the Lord uses. The other part is simply more in the realm of just enjoyment. It, like it seasons, it's savory, it adds spice to things. What if that could be true of us as the church? That our calling as we go out, that things are like, more enjoyable that people would say, hey, I might not believe what they believe. I kind of think they're crazy with some of their beliefs, but man, I love having those people around. They serve our schools in incredible ways. They serve our community. They reach out to those that are, that are the, the most marginalized in, in culture. They have a role in politics. They have all sorts of different impact and influence. And things are better. There's more spice. There's more seasoning. There, there's more just pure enjoyment because the church is being the church. This too is what Jesus has in mind when he says, you're the salt of the earth. But then he gives us a warning. He says, all right, but if it loses its saltiness, it is just to be cast out. It's of no good. We don't want to be in that space. Now, it's really interesting because some of you, if you have more of a scientific background, you're like, okay, well, how can it actually lose its saltiness? Well, there's an interesting thing that's going on culturally here. And a commentator by the name of Daniel Doriani commented on this way. Here's how he explains the latter part of verse 13. He says, sodium chloride, which is common table salt, is a stable chemical compound. So we may wonder what Jesus means when he speaks of salt losing its saltiness. To grasp his point, we need to understand that in ancient times, salt was a piece of rock that was dug from the ground containing many impurities. Water could wash through it, dissolving the sodium chloride and leaving a residue that looked like a salt rock and even retained its original shape, yet lacked the flavor of salt. So there's another layer to this imagery where Jesus is saying it's possible that you might actually give an appearance of being the salt of the earth, but in reality, you're not a preserving agent. You're not adding any sort of seasoning or spice and enjoyment two things. And it's an indictment on us as the church for not stepping in and being what we're called to be. And Jesus says, I invite you in, but you cannot stay. You must be distinct. You can't be just like the world. It's not this syncretistic thing. At the same time, if you go the sectarian route and you're like, I'm just going to separate, what good is a pile of salt over here that is not interacting with the culture, with the world? And then building on this, and sort of another imagery that the Lord uses as he makes this declaration in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. And he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Part of our great calling as a church is to be a city or a community within the bigger city or community that we find ourselves in. That it is here that we put on display the wonder and the glory of who Jesus is. We do it imperfectly. We fail all the time, but we showcase for other people. This is what it looks like to submit your life to Christ. And there is joy to be found even in the difficulty of life and the things that we experience. And so there's this call to be a city set on a hill. And then Jesus says, listen, he goes, think about it logically. He said, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. So there's this calling here to put this on display, not to bring glory to ourselves, look at us, but to light up, to point to Jesus. Our mission as a church is to point our community to Jesus. 
That's part of what it means to raise up this light and say, we want you to see Jesus. We want you to marvel at who he is in all of his glory. And then he says, and he gives light to all the house, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, but not to terminate on themselves, not to, so we get the pat on the back, but why? To give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The end goal is worship. We want more people to worship Jesus because that's where life is found. And so maybe one way to think about this, many scholars who've studied this said, you know, in the salt of the earth, maybe a way to sort of summarize or kind of a general category to think in is like just acts of mercy and service and social justice and some of these things. But when you get to the light of the world, it becomes a bit more emphatically showcasing there is a good word to speak. It's evangelism. It's sharing the story of the gospel, sharing how the Lord has worked in your life. It is actually more than just simply good deeds, but it is this moving forward and declaring the glory of God. He says, you are the light of the world. And so let's just think for a moment here about this imagery. There's some things that light does. I'm sure there's more, all right, but a few things that come to mind. For one, anytime light comes into the darkness, it begins to expose things, right? The scriptures speak over and over again that we as a people, we are prone to want to just hide. We want to stay in the darkness. We don't want things exposed. We're worried that if things, if our life, if my life, if my heart, if everything about me was seen for what it really is, that maybe you would reject me, that God would reject me. And so there's this fear that we can live in. And the Lord says, no, you need to bring things into the light. You need to allow the light to expose things because in that space you'll find that there's a God of the universe that still loves you that he's still moving towards you, that he's still pursuing you. And there can be a relationship with other people as you bring things into the light. John chapter 3, 19 to 20 speaks of it this way. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be Exposed. So Jesus comes on the scene. How does Jesus talk about himself? He says in John chapter, in John chapter 8 and 9, you can go and read this. He says, I'm the light of the world. He's entered into the darkness, which is another powerful reminder of our God that moves into the neighborhood. He doesn't say separate. He's not up there in the heavens saying, man, it's really dark down there. Somebody should do something and just sort of critique and judge, but rather says, hey, I'm the light of the world. I'll enter in. And then he tells us to follow suit and says, okay. I'm the ultimate light, but now you too are to reflect my light. He said, you're the light of the world, and it will expose things. And that may not always be fun or easy, but it is redemptive. We can't see any progress unless things get exposed. The other thing, though, that light does, I think one of the things that is helpful here is that it actually explains, to use the phrase, like to shed light on something, right? It means, oh, okay, that makes sense. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, a collection of his sermons, says this, the sole cause of the troubles of the world at this moment, from the personal to the international level, is nothing but man's estrangement from God. That is the light which only Christians have and which they can give to the world. Man has been so made by God that he cannot truly live unless he is in the right relationship to God. He was made like that. He was made by God, and he was made for God. And so part of our great opportunity as the church is not in the posture of judgment because the light still exposes me, it exposes you, it showcases the, the areas of growth that we still all have, but it also, when we shine the light of the gospel, when we go in and we tell the story that the kingdom of God is at hand, that we're part of this kingdom, we're saying, hey, there's a way that the world was created 
speak of the creation in Genesis 1 and 2, but there was a very real fall, and that story has continued to play out. What happened in Genesis 3 continues to happen, that we continue to reach for that proverbial fruit, thinking, I'll take matters into my own hand. If I could be king, all right, if I can rule my life, things will go well, then we'll actually make progress. And it's a lie that's been perpetuated for thousands and thousands of years. And yet, in the insanity of it, we keep thinking, oh, you know what, I know other people have reached for it, but I'm going to continue to reach for it. I think things will improve for me, and it just doesn't. So there's this story of creation, of fall, but there's redemption, that Jesus would come as the light of the world, that he would step into the dark spaces, that he would do more than simply preserve the world, but one day he's going to restore the whole world. And so we tell this story of creation, fall, redemption, this ultimate restoration. And as you tell that story, and that doesn't mean you do it necessarily with a microphone on or you're not necessarily on a stage, but you will have opportunity with somebody at work or you're having a meal with somebody or your kid might ask a question or your neighbor suddenly asks the question and you're like, uh, I was mowing the yard and now, I, okay, I guess we're having this conversation right now. Like, You have an opportunity to say, it's only the Christian story that actually explains the way why the world is the way that it is, and also the hope that we have. Like, plenty of people would acknowledge, like, hey, the world is, like, decaying and dark at times. People feel that reality. But it's the Christian story that steps in and says, that's not going to be the end of the story, that there actually is hope to be found. And so the last thing I think that we can see is we look at how verse 16 ends. It says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So light exposes, it explains but it also entreats, it's meaning it's this invitation that the good works that we do, they're put on display, but not to point back to ourselves so that more people might worship the God that created them, that created this whole world. And so it's this invitation. Do you really wanna see? Do you wanna be set right with your creator? Do you wanna have a right relationship vertically with the God that made you, Do you horizontally out to other people and out to the creation? Our God is in the business of fixing, of renewing, and he's asking us, he's inviting us to participate. Like you can get in on this story. I love the way C.S. Lewis speaks of this, this sort of imagery about even just as he wrestled deeply with the doctrines of the faith and of Christianity and wondered, could this be, be true? And at, for a long, long time resisted it. But eventually he comes to this place of faith and he said this as kind of a summary statement. He says, I believe in Christianity. He says, as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but, but because by it I see everything else. This entreating, there's this invitation that we get to offer to a world that's saying, okay, listen, through this lens that is the gospel, that is Christianity, through understanding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, not only do we see, like just seeing the sunrise, but we actually see everything. It's through that lens. And that's what this imagery is getting at. As I was preparing for this, one of the stories that, that, that came to mind of who's somebody that even just embodies this, like, there was a pastor during World War II, a pastor and theologian, young man, he was in his mid-30s at the time when the, the Nazi regime was kind of coming on, on the scene and exerting all of their evil influence and, and power and, and wickedness. And this man was this young German Lutheran pastor. And he was a man that began to see everything because of his eyes being open to the reality of Jesus. And the reality of the gospel, it allowed him to see not just, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a sinner and I've been saved by, by God through his, his grace and I get to go to heaven one day, 
It was that, but it also included there is evil that is marching against humankind right now. Like the church has to step in and do something. We are called to be salt and light. And many of you know this, this, uh, of this person. I mean, you studied him before. It's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, all right? This man who would ultimately give his life for the cause of Christ in resistance to the Nazi party. And as this young pastor, this young theologian who literally was now seeing everything through the lens of the gospel, he became just, just so caught up in this vision, particularly in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He would go and write The Cost of Discipleship. All right? He would write another book. And it was a series of lectures that became Life Together, all about this idea of what would it look like if we as the church took this seriously? What would it look like for us to be salt and light? And there, in the time of the Nazi regime, he said, we've got to step in. The world is decaying. All right, There's a darkness, and that darkness is advancing, and the church needs to rise up. Now, as you can imagine, though, in that time and place, there were massive amounts of powerful people and power structures that were seeking to shut that down to the point where most of the German church began to just sort of say, okay, well, hey, we're, we're on the underside of power here. And rather than holding true to their convictions and their beliefs, began to compromise with the Nazi party. Began to like, well, I don't want to lose my livelihood. And so you had the majority, probably 80% of people that were just like, hey, we're going to just compromise with this belief system, this narrative. It seems to be winning. And yet there was this small band of which Dietrich Bonhoeffer played a significant role. It became known as the Confessing Church. And as training for this Confessing Church, they realized, and Bonhoeffer realized, I need to start a seminary. I need to have a place where I can train pastors to be able to step into these spaces to be salt in light. Here's a, a photo of one of their early classes and Bonhoeffer there at the, the front row in the, the center. And so you have this sort of ragtag group of people coming together, much like Jesus described in the Beatitudes. It wasn't the people of power and influence. It was the ones who were being persecuted. It was literally this underground seminary, meaning that they had to do it in secret, all right, because they were standing up against this powerful movement of evil. And Bonhoeffer during this time was giving like a series of lectures, one of which that became this reality. It was known as life together and how we are to function as the church. And there were people that began to visit him, all right? There's a biographer, a guy named Charles Marsh, and he begins to tell the, the story of people just showing up and being like, this seems crazy. Like they come up to Dietrich and they're just like, listen, I don't know what to actually do with what you're calling. This seems, this seems a little bit intense. Like what you're calling for, can we just have a bit more comfortable Christianity is what seems to be happening, all right? And so there's one particular guy who's a young historian by the name of Wilhelm uh, Niesel, all right? And Charles Marsh, in his biography on Bonhoeffer, describes it this way, that one day this Niesel man shows up, right? Begins to sh he shows up here where Bonhoeffer's running this seminary, this small group of people, and he comes to him, he's like, basically like, all right, Dietrich, listen, like, this is too intense. I don't think this is realistic to live this out, and I want to read you the account, just the short account of what Bonhoeffer did with this man, Wilhelm, that had shown up. It says this. He says, perhaps to prove his point, the next morning, Bonhoeffer invited Niesel on a rowing expedition on the Oder Sound. So there's this body of water. And he says, hey, let's go rowing. So they go rowing the next morning. 
He wanted him to better understand the strenuous tone of the lectures, all right, what this man was kind of critiquing, and had an idea of how to make that happen. When the two rowers reached the far shore, Bonhoeffer led Niesel up a small hill to a clearing from which they could see in the distance a vast field and the runways of a nearby squadron. There, German fighter planes were taking off and landing, and soldiers moved hurriedly in purposeful patterns like many ants. Bonhoeffer there spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciplines, he said, were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. So can you picture this? They row across, they go up this hill. Here's this man that's like, Bonhoeffer, listen, it's crazy what you're calling people to. And he brings them up this hill and they look over there in the distance and there is the German army being mobilized and trained. And he rightly says, as he looks out over you know, the, the water and across from, from the hill there, it is a kingdom that is being prepared of hardness and cruelty. That is an understatement, right, from what we know historically. What Bonhoeffer probably at that point only had an inkling of maybe all the atrocities that were taking place. He said, this is what is being formed. So he speaks these words to this man saying, if you want to know why we're doing what we're doing, he continues. He says, it would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. He says, quote, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. Here on this hill, he looks out with this man who's come to critique and who's confused by this movement of this small band of people that are seeking to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he looks over and he says, there's a strength that the world has. And what we're doing over here, this thing that we're doing in this seminary, by the power of God through the gospel, can be stronger than that. It might not look like it. We don't have the fighter planes. We don't have the tanks. We don't have the foot soldiers. But we have the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God. And we trust our God has called us into this space. And so this will be stronger than that. And Bonhoeffer gave his life to that belief and that cause. And there's a calling for us as the church, not in our own strength, but to rise up and say, this cultural moment that we find ourselves in, we still are called to be the salt of the earth. We still are called to be the light of the world. We still are called to showcase that this kingdom of Jesus is more powerful than any other kingdom. And we find life when we submit to this kingdom. And you can say that I read of Bonhoeffer and read the biographies and I'm inspired by that, but I'm also a bit overwhelmed because I'm just like, Okay, that's, that's amazing, but that's a unique select few. Like, he, he, you know, I mean, he's, like, he's a first-round draft pick, right? I mean, that, that guy, all right? And yet, Jesus didn't say, Bonhoeffer is the salt of the earth and light of the world. He says it to the group of people that have gathered there on that hillside a couple thousand years ago. And he says, the meek, the poor, the persecuted, the misunderstood, the maligned, the people that don't have it all together, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And God still speaks that word to us this morning as this church. Will we be this? And so our confidence, though, is what we need to look at. It's not in ourselves. We'll close with this because what is our great confidence? Because that's an amazing task and we can be inspired by that. But at the end of the day, it feels overwhelming. How are you and I going to preserve this world? How are we going to keep it from decaying? How are we going to, to see the, the kingdom of light push back the kingdom of darkness? We have to go back and remember what Jesus said about his church when he brought 
this other group of his 12 disciples. And there, outside of Caesarea Philippi, they stood at a place that was believed to be the gateway to hell where the spirits would enter. And Jesus says, in this place, all right, as, G- as Peter makes this confession, like you're the Christ, and Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, declaring on this statement, Peter, that you've made, but also as they look out over the rock formation of Caesarea Philippi to say, in the evil places like that where no good Jewish boy would travel, in those places I'm gonna build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against her. The church is not in the defensive posture. The church doesn't sit back and wait for the kingdom of darkness to move forward. The church says, no, no, we're moving forward. We're advancing, not in our own strength, but through the power of the gospel and the gates of hell. The the gates are defensive and the church, the power of God, the Holy Spirit is busting through that. And that was true for the disciples 2,000 years ago. And if we would dare to believe it, it's true for you and me and in the places where God has put you. So you think of the places in your life that are dark and chaotic or they're decaying and there's a rottenness and you're just like, I don't know if anything can happen. Invite the Lord into that space. Trust him enough to say, I'm gonna step into that space and see what the Lord can do because our confidence at the end of the day, it's not in yourself. It's not in us even as a church. We're this ragtag group of people. Like, What can we do? But we have a savior who sent us the spirit I love the way Paul says this in Colossians 1. Just be reminded of this. Rest in this. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. He's the one who's made everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And so it's this reminder, like the powers that be, where you see as Bonhoeffer looked across, all right, as the the German, as, as the Nazis were mobilizing, those were the rulers, the authorities, the powers. Whatever it is in our context today, like there are things, there's, a, there's an evil that is advancing and we as the church will look out and say, okay, but whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He, that is Jesus, is before all things and in him, I love this line, in him all things hold together. Can we just rest in that? Yes, you're called to be salt, you're called to be light. All right, we engage in that. There's life to be found there. But at the end of the day, you can, put, you can lay your head down to the pillow at night all right, and just know you're not holding the world up. I'm not holding the world up. Jesus is holding it all together. He's the one that's gonna do more than just preserve it. He's gonna bring about ultimate restoration. That's where Paul continues. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not you, not me, not us as a church, Jesus. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him then, look at the language. Not to just preserve a little bit of the decay, not to slow the decay down, but rather to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, that he's gonna renew, he's gonna restore all things, that Jesus is gonna come back, the light of the world is coming back, and he's gonna eradicate the darkness. There'll be, at that point, there'll be no more need for the sun because we will have the glory, the radiance of Jesus himself, the new heavens, the new earth, this new, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. That's gonna be our home. And in the meantime, the Lord has called us to reflect his light, to be the salt of the earth, to step into the darkness and the decay and all of that, but with a confidence that we're part of a story where Jesus the king is taking his world back and one day he's gonna renew it. And because he's after your joy, he wants you to experience it, he says, you're invited. You get to participate. You get to follow the way of the king. And so I'm gonna close us 
and pray. I just want to encourage you to be thinking through this. Take a moment in the quietness. After we pray, you can go and get your, your kids, but I would encourage you to stay here for a moment and just take some time. What is it that you need to repent of? Where have you become like the culture? Maybe in fear have you retreated from the culture? And then remember the story that you're part of. Remember the confidence that you and I can have as we look at those verses in Colossians 1. If you keep reading Colossians chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus disarmed the authority. Like he made a mockery, a spectacle. Like he literally, in a Roman procession, this prayed, like he drugged his enemies through the streets and said, look what I've conquered. That's our conquering king. We follow him. Remember that story. And then ask the spirit to bring him out. Where do you need to re-engage? Where's maybe a person or a community or something where you're like, this is too overwhelming, this is too hard, and you're discouraged, and the Lord is telling you, no, stay engaged, or maybe to re-engage. Re-engage in your calling as a follower of him. So let me pray, and then I'll give us some instruction in a moment about how we'll continue in our service. But let's go before the Lord in prayer right now. Father, thank you for your kindness and grace toward us that you would allow us to be reconciled to you through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We have no business being part of this mission. We deserve hell. We deserve ultimate darkness and decay, and yet you've invited us in. You've redeemed us. You've rescued us. You've called us to yourself. So we give you praise for that. And yet, God, we confess that as a church, we oftentimes haven't been the church you've called us to be, that there's a decay and a darkness in the world because we haven't always been the salt and the light. And so, Lord, individually and even collectively as a church, lead us in a time of repentance. And then, Spirit, in your grace, would you also, in addition to conviction, would you bring the comfort that only the gospel can bring? And we thank you, Spirit, as well, that you've given us this great calling, this commissioning, and so... Show us, where do you want us to engage? Where do you want us to not give up? Where, do you, where are you calling us right now to believe that this kingdom of Jesus can be stronger than that, those kingdoms of the world and the powers that be? Help us to be the church. Pray that in your strength we would advance, and God, that it would be for your glory and our great joy. And so hear our prayers now, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.